Hello, welcome to Launch Left. This is our inaugural artist takeover show. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine because Michael Stipe is hosting this show, and he's brought his friend Jem Cohen, filmmaker, incredible human being. They both are. You're going to love the show. Please welcome them to the show. But first, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. This is Launch Left with Artist Takeover. I'm your host, Michael Stipe, tonight speaking to Jem Cohen, filmmaker and artist extraordinaire. Hi, Jim. How are you? Hi, Michael. I'm all right. Happy New Year, all, all things considered. Uh, and given the times, given, given what we're moving through, I know both of us feel a bit of reticence about having a conversation about art and music uh, and the, the creative arts at a time like now. Uh, and yet it, it, it does beg a question of, of people like ourselves, creators, let's say. If, are you okay with that term? People use it with ill will. I just... I'm allergic to it. We're people who make things. That I that I like. Some of them are tangible. Some of them are some of them are made of light. Some of them are made of sound. Uh, some of them you can touch. A lot of them you can't. But yeah. we're we're artists and filmmakers and musicians and all around good guys. And 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 yet uh, the times that we're living in and the times we're living through the moment that we are in right this second as we record this um, the moment that we are anticipating we have no idea what's going to happen. Things have been very 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 strange. We're out of 2020, thank God. We're in 2021. I feel optimistic and as much as one can, I feel um, like what we've been through might put us in a better place with, with, a lot of, uh, with, with a lot of difficulty. But the question that I think Launch Left is really interested in is how does filmmaking, music, the creative arts, art, what, what role do we have in politics, in activism, how, how do these two somewhat disparate things or seemingly disparate things merge and come together? What's your take on that? Well, um, my take on it is that um, the merger is, is necessary and it's also inherent. And I also, I don't, I don't claim for myself the title of activist because uh, a lot of people do it a lot more full time and a lot better than I do. But I also feel that uh, it's been part of my life since I was a little kid at some of the biggest peace marches that the nation has ever seen. Uh, you know, I was in those making signs and I'm still at the protests, you know, <laughs> not necessarily with a sign, but I'm, I'm there. And I've been involved in a lot of strange pockets of activism that I never expected to be involved with, whether it was you know, fighting the nuclear and toxic waste storage depot in the poor neighborhood of Williamsburg where I lived. You know, I fought that with my brother for seven or eight years. I completely forget about it. It's like some bizarre artifact from my past. And then I think one of the most important struggles I was involved in was very intimately entwined with, with filmmaking and photography, which was uh, fighting for the rights of uh, photographers to to shoot on the street in 2007, and that was a, a, a strange moment where, uh, almost under the radar, they were going to change the regulations that would have said that in order to photograph on the street, uh, you needed a uh, million dollars coverage in a permit, and you had a limitation of 15 minutes in one place, and 
all of these other stri stringent regulations uh, that were just sort of quietly going to slide into place. And it, you know, it, it's a long story as to why those rules came up for review. But basically, a few of us found out about it, and um, within a few months, we had you know, I don't know, thirty thousand signatures, and you know, people like D. A. Pennebaker and Magnum Photo Agency, and and so on and so on, ma making a big ruckus. And, uh, you know, then then it was a couple of years of going to hearings. And we got, you know, we had our support from the, the New York Civil Liberties Union, which is a part of the connected to the ACLU. And, uh, you know, and we turned it around. I mean, I just I still can't believe that that uh, at that point, you know, we managed to actually win that one to the degree that it's actually it became a very a very good place to shoot on the street because there there was a recognition of prioritizing the rights of the artist to do their work as a as a mode of freedom of expression as long as they weren't you know actively interfering with with other people um and so you know that was a really beautiful moment and in which you know the tradition that I had been brought up in, in my family of street photography, because um, my mom was married to a very important uh, teacher and street photographer. And so that was part of my family history was not only street photography, but also this, uh, her former husband, his name was Sid Grossman, he was blacklisted in the McCarthy era, and he couldn't, he couldn't work. Uh, and he died after a couple of years from a heart attack. And my mother always felt that the FBI and Joe McCarthy killed him, which suddenly brings me to a, a memory. Part of that legacy was one of Sid's students was a great street photographer, Leon Levenstein. And early in the days when I met you, I remember taking you to the little storage room where this mountain of incredible photographs were stored. And, you know, Leon was largely forgotten and I knew that you loved photography and that was one of the things that, you know, that I thought would be a special thing for us to do. You know? So that's a, that's a, it's a nice little memory. Uh, it certainly, it certainly is. And I was going to bring up Leon. Uh, I, I look around, I look behind you and I look behind me. We're both in our studios here and I see similar stacks of things <laughs> to Leon's yeah. facility. It, it <laughs> happens. But along with Leon, we had, you know, incredible Lee Friedlander is still with us. Robert Frank, uh, recently uh, recently left us uh, in this form, but also left us with a lifetime of unbelievable material and images and, and mem beautiful memories, personal memories, but also just the work that he did. Uh, Gary Winogrand, I don't know if you saw the show that was on of his uh, at the Metropolitan. Uh, I did. I, I, I love Winogrand and uh, that show was, was amazing. Heartbreaking too, but really also like joy, joyful. I remember that they had um, demarcated, I think by color or by uh, frame, images that he had printed in his lifetime. Right. Images that he had marked on contact sheets but had never been printed in his lifetime. And then images that were chosen by the curators that they they thought uh, after, after he was gone and had no say in it, they thought that these images told a story of who he was and what he what, what type of artist he was. And I thought significant to include all three, but really incredible that they um, allowed us, the audience, to be intelligent enough uh, to 
be able to, to, to mark each of them so that we could distinguish one from the other. We weren't looking uh, strictly at uh, his body of work that he was able to print in his lifetime, but the stuff that he also chose and then the stuff that they chose represented him. There's a degree to which it freaks people out that Winogrand left hundreds of thousands of pictures, thousands and thousands of rolls of film, not even processed, much less printed. Um, you know, there's a there's something maybe troubling and dark about that that I understand when I dig through my own archive and I realize that I've got hundreds of thousands of rolls of film and tapes that are never going to be reckoned with probably. But there's also something that I think about it, which is that uh, Winogrand and Robert Frank and Helen Levitt and Leon Lemstein, uh, Arbus too, they love their work. Wendy Ewald, she's she's not quite a street photographer. Yeah, yeah, but she's a wonderful entity and her work, especially with with kids and has meant a lot to me. Um, uh, but all of those people love their work. They love shooting. They love being in the world. And and the, you know, whether or not they got to print all of it or, or you know, be at their shows or be at their retrospectives or get their due is pretty secondary to the fact that it was a very joyful thing. I think it's a big misconception that people have about a lot of artists, but street photography in particular, which is that even if people are doing work that can be very critical of aspects of the world that they have trouble with or that they wish would change. There's something in the doing. There's something in the in the being there and the wandering that's totally a blast. It's totally, it's 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 exciting and it, it's obsessive. It's often very funny. It's, it's just a great w w way to spend time on this planet. And I try to remind myself of, of that a lot, that even that when I get bogged down and worrying about you know, the debacle that is my archive or, you know, preservation and all those aspects. I know I remember that I actually had a pretty good time collecting all those, you know, dust balls and stashing them away. And then every once in a while I go dig through them and I find things that are, that are important to me. Right now you mentioned Robert Frank and a lot of people don't know the amazing artist, uh, his wife, June Leaf, um, who's 91 now. And she's been one of my favorite artists for you know, 25 years, and I'm trying to do a portrait of her now, and I'm digging through my archive, and I'm finding, you know, oh, here's a little fragment of Super 8, and here's a little, uh, you know, little bit of an interview that I got out of her in, you know, 2011 or whatever. So that's a big part of my life is to uh, try to do some of that sifting you know, while it's still possible. I would throw Ouija in with that list of people. Um, although he was, he was, he was working on a whole other level. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's so, there's so many, I, I, I really, really love uh, Roy DeCarava, you know, who's one of, and uh, you know, it was just incredible this year to see two big shows of original prints, because that's the kind of thing that, and Dekarava is instructive. You know, one thing that's important to note about Dekarava is you have to be there with the prints because some of them are so dark that it's like you can barely find John Coltrane and then you find him and it's so beautiful, but you, it can't 
it can't reproduce all that perfectly and you really can't see it on a little screen you know you can't see it on your phone you can't see it you know that's not every every kind of photo that he took wasn't that way but an, an awful lot of them were and they're sublime you know so i watched i've been watching the fran levowitz uh series uh show with martin scorsese i really recommend it uh uh, but but she's, in a way, uh, as a writer, she's documenting her world in the same way as all the photographers, all the street photographers, photographers we've been talking about, and you as a filmmaker. What what what's your take on like the way things are stored now, the way these things that we leave behind? Let's say you and I um, are here for another fifty years, and then we and then we spin off and we go on to the next iteration because you're as much of a control freak as I am with the work that you do and with how it's presented, how it's put together, um, all, all the all the stuff. What, what's your take on that archive of stuff and, and people digging through it and, and pulling from it uh, after you're gone, after I'm gone? I'm conflicted. I'm pretty obsessed with it. I, I think, I think, you know, we're at an age where that it's, it's no surprise that we start to think about that kind of thing, but I don't know what to, I don't know how to, how to sort it. I mean, in, in part, because there's a lot of things I can't control. I mean, a lot of preservation has to do with having the means and the money to properly preserve things. And I'm realizing like, that's just not exactly in the cards. There are some things that I'm very uh, thankful to have gotten into collections, like, you know, the Museum of Modern Art has to take care of some of my, <laughs> some of my junk, whether they, whether they want to or not, you know, that's the kind of the the deal, deal that I was lucky to make with some films, but there's a lot of other, you know, the the the, the raw footage, a lot of photo, still photographs, uh, a lot of things are just on ephemeral formats. A lot of the video, you know, I can't move them from one inch open reel to beta SP to digi beta or D1 to proper, you know, it's in, it's crazy, and and there's a lot of planned obsolescence where things just just go a lot you know a lot of my photo work has been done in polaroid and those were never meant to last 150 years or 100 years some of them you know so i'm i'm so torn let's, about let's, it let's move forward 150 years let's let's make it a, a, an absurd number yeah. uh, amount of time uh humanity still exists uh the 20 the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century are fascinating uh the, the let's say the first half of the 21st century or fascinating to people then like what did it look like what were people what like why did they make the choices and the decisions that they made what let's say the jim cohen archive is a huge part of how people are able to imagine or picture what it was like to live now would that would that thrill you or would that disturb you thinking about it now well i don't think it's bloody likely michael <laughs> no, but, so, I, but i mean it's uh, yeah okay just imagine here's what i'll say on, like beta to you know reel to reel to eight track to vinyl to uh cassette to dvd to whatever let's get let's get beyond all that let's just say that by some magical thing right your archive is discovered and it's the it's the only one it's the one that really shows new york city from 1985 <sighs> to to 20 45. 
then I would be mad that I missed all the things that I missed because there's an awful lot of like little mom and pop shops that went under that I always meant to go shoot and didn't or a lot of people that I meant to talk to more that I didn't and so on. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, if you're going to ask, it's kind of an embarrassing thing to say, but um, I'm here to make the work and I want the work to, to travel on. I don't think it's going to travel on forever and ever and ever, but I would love to get a few hundred years out of it. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things is to stand in front of a painting from the 1600s or the 1500s and have my mind be totally blown that the colors are that unearthly present. You know, when I'm looking at a Bosch or a Bruegel or, uh, you know, I just can't believe that we still, that it's stuck around and that humans get to get to stand in front of it and have their minds blown yet again. So I, I have hopes that I think that, that this is, I love museums. You know, I did a feature film just mostly to say, I love what a museum can do. I, I, I like that. I like art. My fame in this life is dubious and secondary, but I, I, I can't pretend that I don't, that I'm not trying to make work that sticks around a little bit. So I, I, I'm trying, I try to do that. I try to attend to that. I try to, I put my, I put my effort into just making more and more and more of it in the hopes that somehow by some luck it gets found, but I'm not, I'm not able to put all of the energy into preserving it and promoting it and pushing it now. I'm, my energy has to go towards the next thing that I want to make because we all have some this crazy ability to forget what a pain in the ass it is to actually like you're trying to finish a book right now. And it's, I would guess that to some degree it's uh, harrowing and, and, you know, you wish you could, you know, sleep a little later instead of digging through the box for that picture or whatever it is that you have to do. I, I pulled an image yesterday. I'm on such a, I'm on so far behind deadline. I pulled an image yesterday and re I'm replacing it after our conversation today. Yeah. <laughs> so well, that's, you know, that's the thing that sometimes has, has to happen. But, but, but for, you know, but for Winogrand, he, he reached a point where that was no longer in the picture. That was no longer in the cards. Uh, and, and so that's the way, it, that's the way it rolled. This speaks to some of something that, that, I, that I find, it's for me, one of the more fascinating aspects of our history together, um, that we both arrived at something at the same time. In the early 90s, I'm going to place it. It's about um, some. It's, it's about our work, our visual work, um, being timeless, and then how, at the same time, in my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, you and I arrived at that timelessness being a ludicrous uh, position for for each of us as as visual artists to take up, and we started rather than framing out the aspects of life that link to a certain time, we started framing in those aspects. you want to talk about that? Look, we used to butt heads a lot when we would talk about art. I mean, that's one of my funniest, earliest memories of late 80s, first times being at your place in Athens and having a you know, kind of a knockdown drag out argument about like appropriation. It's like still stuff that we disagree about, but there's a lot more that we do agree about. And I think that like when you mention that, I think very specifically 
to a piece that uh, you might have seen because it was at the High Museum in Atlanta, which was a, a portrait of Central and Eastern Europe soon after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what I what happened to me is that there were so many places on earth that I loved, you know, with buildings I loved and streets I loved and so on. But I was I found increasingly over the years that I was having to put something that I really did not love uh, out of the frame in order to get the shot of the beautiful old house or street or whatever. And and it it struck me in Eastern Europe when I was in at some unbelievably beautiful train station and shooting Super 8 and like waiting for the light and a, 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 a train rolled in that was like 10 cars just completely, the whole entire train was the Coca-Cola logo uh, you know, as if the the train itself was just one long rolling advertisement, and it it broke my heart, you know. But but then that became part of what I was documenting, and then I went on to take that in a much more absurd direction with the project chain, where I began to collect images of shopping malls and chain hotels and superhighways, uh, and to sort of play this weird game of. You know, one of the things that I was doing was to see if I could join them all together seamlessly so that you wouldn't know where you were anymore. And and I, you know, I, I used to talk to you a lot about that in regards to greater Athens area and what was happening in Atlanta and the way the suburbs just spread and spread and spread. But another thing that I was doing also was finding that sometimes it was beautiful being in the hateful parking lot and, you know, looking at the weird glow from the shopping mall. Like I couldn't, I didn't want to pretend that 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 was um, not not part of the world. You know that there were that there was also sometimes a weird beauty and in, in terrible things. You know, and, and that that's it's just always been a part of it. I mean, I I I, I thought about it a lot when I was working with Fugazi and going back and forth across the country and instrument and shooting. You know, uh, uh, fast food places and all you know and and thinking about the fact that we were moving through that landscape that as musicians they were moving through a landscape that they would then reflect in their work you know and i could hear wonderful pieces of it in their lyrics and that kind of thing so i think i do believe in timelessness um i think maybe the best thing that i did over the over the covid lockdown bummer was I actually did get finally read Moby Dick and Ed, that's a that's pretty damn timeless <laughs> I'm, reading, I'm reading Moby Dick I can't believe you said I, I, I have to say the book is so weird and it's so strangely funny in ways that I was not prepared for and it's also it's kind of a I mean it, it's hallucinatory and it's a completely like advanced mix of fiction and nonfiction, documentary and hallucination. Like it's so crazy ahead of its time that I just couldn't believe it because I thought that it was this sort of, you know, it, it scared me for many years. It's just this difficult tome that I was probably never going to get to. And then finally, you know, because of this mess, I got to it and I just can't, I can't get over how modern and tripped out it is, and I. It, it made me. It made me really happy. <laughs> you know? One of the last things I did before COVID, before the lockdown, was to attend a dinner 
I don't remember why I brought it up. I think because it is such a tome. Moby Dick is like this impossibly enormous book. I've been told now, Jim, and if you're still reading it, I don't know if you finished it. No, I'm done. Yeah. I'm still reading it. But at this dinner, I raised the question. So, I mean, who here really has read Moby Dick? Kind of like tossing it off every hand around the table. It was a party of about nine people. I was the only person whose hand didn't go up. And I looked around and I was like, oh man, (laughs) I need to read the book. It's time to read Moby Dick. Well, we can't read everything. And I have, I, there's a lot of things that I, you know, that I whip myself. I self-flagellate that I'm never going to get to this and never going to get to that. And, you know, wish that I had read. There's a lot of things at the dinner party that my hand is not going to go up. That's, that's the way it is. There are a lot of movies that I haven't seen that people can't believe I haven't seen. So, Is there one that you can name that's really like horrifyingly embarrassing that you've never seen? I could blow your mind with mine. Oh, uh, no. I mean, I, I, I could go on for at length, but I don't, I don't want to do that because it's, I don't know, it, it would be a, a listicle or whatever they call those <laughs> things. Uh, no, I mean, I, I don't really keep up. I just don't, I don't keep up. I mean, you could name any famous actor and probably I've never seen them in a film, believe it or not. It, it's true. I mean, current, contemporary. And uh, I, I'm not proud of that, actually. I, there are a lot of things that I just wish I had time for. But again, I'm, I'm not in my studio. I'm in my, <laughs> I'm in my studio, but I'm in my apartment. And when I roll out of bed, you know, I've got stacks of things that need to be logged and that need that I want to edit and all of that. And so I do very little actual movie watching at home and occasionally, uh, you know, it, like it's great to be able to take a moment with the Criterion channel and catch up with something and like watch a Chantal Ackerman movie that I wasn't able to catch ever before. Or the thing that I'm trying to remind myself to do right now is I think that they still have a bunch of Mae West movies and I, and Mae West is, is, is like Moby Dick, like shockingly. I can't believe of, you said that. Oh my God. <laughs> this is too good. It's yours. Like, Happy birthday, baby. We did not prepare this. <laughs> are, are you ready for, are you ready for what it is though? It's a coat hanger. <laughs> oh my God. That is so funny. The two-sided Mae West coat hanger, I think from the 70s. This is a part of a, pro- a project that I did that I, I I'm it's ongoing, uh, but I became obsessed with certain figures from the past who were larger than life. Uh, and I, what I landed on, you know, I, I, I did the whole thing with uh, Roy Cohen uh, on, on the darker side. Uh, uh, James Dean, of course, Marilyn Monroe, of course, Marlon Brando, of course, Mae West. What I wound, what I landed on really truly was Brando. And so Brando will be with me through, I think, the rest of my life. But anyway, I have an archive of May West. Where, where are we going? Uh, and so happy birthday, baby. This is for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to be thankful for things like May West. But, you know, when you bring up this whole issue of archives and who, you know, and and what's everlasting and what isn't, I everything always for me turns to Vic Chestnut, who is a deep, deep part of our background. And I, I just, I'll detour for a minute to say, um, it's not the very first time I met you, because the very first time I met you, you won't remember, which is that 
your band REM was opening for the ventures. I had the first single. And because of the on the strength of that single, some friends New Haven, New Haven at a place yeah. like Toads. I don't remember where it was, but it probably was Toads in New Haven. Toads. So you were opening for the ventures. I came, I liked the ventures, but I wasn't there to see them. We saw REM and I came and talked to you at the van. That's the first time that we met. The second time that we met, though, I you know who was there that night? No. <laughs> May West. <laughs> no, but you know who was there that night, actually? And we, we had we had probably one of the worst pizzas I've ever eaten, but I ate four pieces because I was literally starving to death. Jane Pratt was there that night. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Jane Pratt was there that night. We opened for the ventures exactly once. The guys might um refute that, but I distinctly remember. Toad's Place in New Haven. Yeah, that would be right. And anyway, uh, I don't remember you. But no, I, it was I mumbled a few words, and you believe me, you mumbled them back, uh, <laughs> maybe even more quietly. Uh, it was a great, great show in which you did not budge from the microphone. You held the mic in both hands and you stared at a spot on the ceiling and did not engage with the audience one bit and i thought it was one of the coolest things i'd ever seen which it was i mean it was a it was a beautiful uh it was a beautiful strange performance um but anyway then i came down to athens georgia in my old chevy and i was you know you had given me kind of cryptic instructions of how to find you um but i pulled into a little place called the java coffee shop slash bicycle repair, if I recall correctly. And I sat down and at the, ne the next table was a young guy in a wheelchair uh, talking to uh, a, a, a Mr. Seawright and having some wild conversation about American history, probably. And they were very welcoming and they were very kind to me as a kind of, you know, mystery Yankee who had just pulled in. and. That's how I met Vic. And then I found out that you, uh, you know, had dragged him, that he was a musician and that you had dragged him into the studio for the little recordings. And then eventually um, I ended up at one of the greatest art moments of my life, which is when you were producing West of Rome. And I was because of uh, a, a good project that Pete Sillen, um, a great friend and, and wonderful filmmaker uh he was working on his little portrait of vic and had hired me and hired is a stretching the word but brought me along um and i ended up sitting in on that whole session of west of rome and it was one of the most uh it will never get any better than that you know and anyway i brought all this up in my most circuitous fashion. Uh, actually, I can be much more circuitous even than that. But uh, I don't know how famous Vic is going to be. And Vic is beloved by many people and many people of many musicians of high regard love Vic Chestnut. He, he's not. He was never long in, in great obscurity. But he hasn't gotten anywhere near his due in the scheme of music and history. I mean, to me, as a writer, 
he is an American master on par with all of the American masters. Uh, and I have thought long and hard about Vic because I assumed that it would go another way probably right around the time of his death, I thought he would be everywhere. And the truth was that on his last tour with some of the greatest musicians that I know, members of uh, Fugazi and Godspeed You Black Emperor and other extraordinary musicians, they played in Boston to, I don't know, 50, 75 people, it, I, you know, that's outrageous to me, but you know how many. But but it's also the you know that the 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 ridiculously overtold story about the tiny number of people in the room at the who saw the Velvet Underground, and then how it changed their lives. And so, I don't know that it matters that much that Vic was never giant by today's standards or on social media or. You know, I don't, I just, I don't know. I know, I know that Vic, I know that I think of him every day and I mean every day. And I know that I, that I, 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 I just love his work so much. And I'm so glad that he, he made a lot of it. You know, he made so much of it, but I don't know what it means to think of like, why the hell that, why the hell was the crowd that small in Boston for what I guarantee was one of the most powerful musical experiences that people could have experienced that night and somehow didn't, you know? So I don't, I, I can't really quite get my head around that. And I deal, I grapple with it all the time in terms of a lot of artists that I love who are, who are obscure, you know, and when, when I met Benjamin from, and then eventually, you know, long before I did, Benjamin Smoke, I mean, that was an obscure band. Like you were Georgia, so Benjamin was infamous to you. But outside of Georgia, people never really knew about Smoke. We have to remind ourselves of that when we when we fall into these our obsessions about promotion or 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 likes or or how many followers we have or how many followers so-and-so has. It's a, it is, um, sometimes these are actually kind of interesting tools that can, that can bring things around the world in, in interesting ways where people can discover them. So I don't, I'm, I, I don't want to do it like a knee jerk rejection of, of all of that stuff. But I do think we, we have to, we have to, Moby Dick was a bust. Moby Dick came out and failed. Well, same with Van Gogh. I mean, a lot of yeah, a lot of that, a lot of things. Yeah, and and so you know, we one of my one of my great regrets is that I don't know that I gave as much as I admired and loved Vic, uh, as much as uh, and you made re reference to this, but I'll just back it up by saying I met Vic before he'd ever recorded anything, and my first. Uh, conversation with him, I said, let's get you in a studio before you kill yourself. And so I wound up uh, producing his first album, Little, and then West of Rome, which you just spoke of. Hal Wilner, who we lost to COVID this year, one of my most admired producers and music 
lovers, the guy who is literally uh, encyclopedic about every musical form ever recorded. Hal once paid me the greatest compliment I've ever been paid when he said that West of Rome was the best produced album he'd ever heard. I couldn't believe. I, I still hold that as the greatest compliment I've ever received. Um, right on, and right on to Hal Wilner. I mean, what a what a beautiful man that was, you know. I mean, beautiful. and he went down taking with him an arc of arcane musical knowledge, especially about jazz, that I don't think can be equaled, uh, which is heartbreaking. But it's also it's also pretty joyous to remember you know, how lucky it was to be able to sit at some diner and hear him tell stories. And so, you know, that's what we have to remember more than what disappeared. But uh, Hal was, was uh, I'll never meet anybody like, again, like Hal Wilner. And I met Hal Wilner because I did a music video for you early on, the first one that I did. And I, and I went to deliver it in Woodstock, New York and ended up at this crazy party and I was so uh freaked out that I didn't like I didn't I was just scared <laughs> and didn't that know Todd, that was at Todd Rundgren's house y- yes we we don't go into that whole party but suffice to say I ended up in the kitchen talking to Hal Wilner about Mary Margaret O'Hara Amazing. who again was at the time you know n- not very well known and 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 Wilner revered her as do you as did Vic as do I to this day, uh, we know that uh, she is one of the greats. So, you know, these all are- the people, All these people that we're talking about, yourself, uh, Mary Margaret, Vic, Hal, are all portrayed in my next book of portraits. Uh, Great. Yeah, so, I, and, and I'm not bringing this around to me, that's, I, I made a pointed effort today not to talk about myself, <laughs> which is very difficult but for me, but, um, I think the the resonance of the work of these people carries on. However, well, it, uh, it does, and and we also have to remind ourselves to keep uh, discovering new people. I mean, I I I, I when I wrote the when I wrote the uh, memorial spiel for Vic at at his service, I talked about um, how Vic turned me on to C.D. Wright, this incredible poet who we also, you know, lost a few years ago, but C.D. Wright, I, I might not have heard of her if it hadn't been for Vic. And then, you know, she's, she's a, she's one of the epic forces. I mean, she's quite well known in the world of poetry, certainly, but she should have been known to me. And now, right now I'm reading, looking at, excuse me, these incredible photo books by this guy, Stephen Gill, uh, I, they're just, they're such a joy. They're so amazing to me. And they're so beautifully made. One thing that he got, that he kind of got out there a little farther than other things was he did a book where he put a camera on a post in a field in the, in the, out in nowhere. And then it was right a few feet away from another post. And it was triggered whenever a bird landed on one. So it was like bird self portraits. And they're so astonishingly strange and beautiful. He's like a one-man factory of incredible bookmaking. If you're, I encourage people to go to his site called Nobody Books. Uh, they're very, very beautiful. They're very wonderful. And it's just, it's just like, it's, 
it's just making me so happy to be able to sit with his stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm listening to a sax player, Montana Roberts, who is just, you know, I'm just like, I'm just so happy to be like sitting and listening to her and knowing that I don't have any idea what kind of music this could be identified as, because it might be jazz and it might be improv and it might be something that doesn't, that there isn't the name for it, but it's like, it's just, it's great, you know, and I'm listening to uh, uh, my friends, uh, Jim White and George uh, Yorgos Zilora. So I, I think that you've seen this incredible duo. And then, but Jim recently did a record with a guitarist I didn't know named Marissa Anderson. And it's a, it's just a wildly beautiful record, you know, that, that, that uh, I'm happy to be hearing. I also, you know, I, aside from reading Moby Dick, the, another thing that I did over this crazy time is um, I forced myself to really listen to Joni Mitchell because I had never, I'd just never really been on the Joni Mitchell train. And I finally, like, I did that and it was good. <laughs> it was great, you know? And 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 so, and, and, and then there's, you know, there's things that I- Like it, did you wind up liking her? I ended up, completely blown away by I mean particularly by blue which is like the one yeah. that 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 is like maybe easier to to like for people who don't love jo Joni Mitchell um I've come back I've come back to a uh, Beverly Glenn Copeland uh I don't know if you know that that work it's incredible and I I always think of Q-Tip when I think of Joni Mitchell because Tip is the one who introduced Joni Mitchell <laughs> to the world of hip-hop wow I'm going to have to, I'm going to Google that after this. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did a lot of research and uh, looked at several of your, uh, of your pieces of your films. Um, and I, and I came up with a, uh, I index carded like, uh, like <laughs> Sally, Jesse, Raphael. <laughs> I wanted to read the index card topics that I wanted to touch on with you. Uh, okay. And this is, this is looking through your work, but it's really referencing I bring it back to Vic, to Patty, to, I'm going to throw Joni Mitchell in there. I'm not a, I, I, again, I was never on that train, but I, I'm going to guess that through what I presume is an immense uh, instinct on her part, that she arrives at um, a lot of the choices that she makes as a recording artist uh, or as an artist through mistake. And I wanted to talk about that. That's my number one. But I, I, I'm, we're going to start with that. God is in the mistake. So what is a mistake and, and how does that push you out of your own head and into a larger part of, uh, of uh, an instinctual, uh, unconscious um, uh, uh, path uh, of discovery when, when making things, when making films, when making music, when writing lyrics, when writing prose? I would, uh, I would throw many of the people that we truly, truly admire into that list. So there's God is in the mistake. There's music and film and how they come together and, 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 and how a visual and sound work together. And that's something that you work with a, a huge amount. Uh, beauty in the extraordinary, the elevation of the ordinary. Uh, and that's something that, again, as a filmmaker, you've worked with a lot. Dissonance and juxtaposition. And I think a lot about your, um, your visual eye and how you marry that with often dissonant music uh, or, or musical passages 
uh, and the people that you've chosen to work with. Uh, and then the other things we've covered, although one, there's, there's one last one, and it does actually really apply, the sentimentality and its place. I, I, I think that there's nothing bigger than, than chance in my, in my work. And, and I, I, don't, I don't do all of my work as a street photographer by, by any means. And I'm not one of the great street photographers. I mean, when I watch my friend Michael Ackerman on the street, I realize like I, he's a street photographer. I'm not a street photographer uh, because he's fearless in a way that I'm not. And, and I'm more, I'm reticent in a, in a way that, that he isn't. And, uh, but, 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 but I will say that um, the thing about street photography or about documentary that matters so much to me in a, in a way is that you can't control it. Like you're, you're standing somewhere and things are bouncing at you like particle physics. And you don't, you don't know what they're going to be. You don't, you don't know what's coming around the corner. So you have to accept that. And as a, as people who are kind of control freaks, that's a weird thing to complete, to embrace, but it's wonderful, you know, and, and it, it, it also, you know, like it has to do with that book I just described about the birds, you know, it, it has to do with uh, improvised music. It has to do with a lot of bands. I love to me. Fugazi never had a set list. They never played with a set list. Every single night, every single song could go to any other song, but they weren't improv musicians in, in the way that some other improv musicians dedicate their lives to that, you know, but, but they built it in to their, to their way of working that was completely integral, you know? And so those, that kind of thing is crucial to me, uh, to accept chance, to accept and embrace things, some things that you, that you're not going to be able to control and to celebrate that. I don't edit like a normal person because I never, in part, because I never, I never learned to, and it never really interested me because I always thought like editing is like thinking. It is free association in pictures and sounds. So if you want to emphasize the free part, well, that, that has nothing to do with what most traditional movie making thinks about editing as they think of, they think about rules and how you will tell a story by getting from here to here through the editing. And I, for, for whatever reason, never picked that up or threw it away. I I'm interested in this notion of how you can, how it can be free like thought. And so th there are things that I will never know until I try them. And I, there, if I put this sound next to that picture, I can think all I want that it'll work or that it won't work, but I don't know. And then I do it and then I, it can completely take me by surprise. And that's just one of the great, the great pleasures is to be, is to have your presuppositions hijacked and have something work in some strange way. As far as, you know, I, I have to be careful talking about music and image because I have to avoid a tirade that I've given too many times, which is my tirade about music video. Uh, you know, I can sum it up by saying that my trouble with, with music video is in part that I, I think it became a form of advertising. And I don't think that the primary or dominant way in which images and music are conjoined in our lifetimes should be advertising. Like I just, I consider that to be unacceptable. And so I had a lot of problems with the industry. But the other problem I had was with the kind of um, one-to-one -one correspondence with 
image and sound that I realized was actually not at all difficult to do. Like it's very easy to cut on the beat and it's very easy to, uh, to make images work with music in a really easy way. And that that's a continue that for 25, 30 years now, I've been tormenting myself with that challenge of trying to have images and sound work in ways that are that are somehow mysterious or somehow freeing or somehow not what you would expect. And and I, you know, I for the most part I got out of music video with a few exceptions, but I did one recently for a wonderful musician, Jessica Moss. I don't know if you watched that one. She's yes, a incredible. solo violin incredible. person and she's doing wonderful work. And she, she was in that band Silver Mount Zion, but now she's doing this great solo work. And I have a funny, I have a, I, I have sure. a funny story to tell you about that and I'll, I'll be brief. I watched it. I thought you, you sent me a list of things and some of them I'd seen before and others I had not. I watched it. And then the one that you had uh, on your list in, Vim, in Vimeo directly after that was Patti Smith reciting uh, about um, about passages, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. I gave so you. I opened a new window, I went to Vimeo, and I was like, wow, Jim made this really wild. I mean, he's taking this like mistake and music thing so far that he has Patti Smith reciting uh, this dialogue, this beautiful dialogue in her voice over this incredible imagery of this build, this incredible build. I'm like, am I in Rome? Am I in Paris? It turns out I'm in Paris, but I thought I was in Rome. Uh, but her voice is mixed so low because you have this crazy music playing behind it. <laughs> I know like, you, now I know it's coming. It's <laughs> super crazy music. I'm like, what the fuck is this music? It's so insane. And Jim had the audacity to include Patty, but then had this music like drowning her out through half of it. And the film ends visually, and Patty ends, and the music keeps going for over 12 minutes. I'm like, what is he doing? And then I realized, of course, but the Vimeo that I had seen of Jessica, is that her name, the cellist? Jessica Moss, yeah. Jessica, the, the uh, violinist. Uh, sorry, yeah, v Vimeo had gone on to the next, <laughs> they were, they were, they had me on a loop. And I right. was listening to, and I can tell you what it was. In fact, it was very Jim Cohen, uh, but it, it did not, I mean, it actually worked with passages, <laughs> um, but I took a screenshot when I realized my mistake. And I thought you would really, this is a very Walker Percy kind of moment from both of us, I think. Manual Minook. Okay. Baby, baby, it has to fall. Yeah. So this is a great piece. And Ephraim is one of my dear friends. Ephraim is the person, uh, one of the, one of the found founders of Godspeed, you black emperor. And uh, he's doing great work right now in a duo. He's doing great work in a duo with uh, uh, Kevin Doria called Sing Sink Sink. I get, I always get the name wrong. Ephraim's a great musician and I, I, we go back a long way. So that would work with that piece. It's actually, the piece of mine is a film that very few people have seen called The Passage Clock, which is really a tribute to Walter Benjamin, Benjamin, Benjamin Walter. And, Chris, and to Chris Marker and to Patty. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a weird well, there's, piece. There's, there's your still from it. Yeah, that's a that's a uh, a church in Paris, and I shot it with the Bolex in sixteen millimeter. And then there wasn't. I was trying to make this in time to uh, have it be uh, shown in like a ridiculous window of like two weeks. So I the the only people who could turn the footage around was a local lab 
that was artist run called La Balminab. Like, <laughs> the, I, I don't speak French, but it was like the abominable, labominable. Uh, and so I took it there and then the footage came out looking like it had been buried in dirt for 150 years, which was perfect for the piece. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, yeah, that was a, I was very pleased. Uh, was that for Patty's show? At, it, uh, it was for, for Patty's show. Uh, I, I was very honored to be able to collaborate with her on some pieces for this big show that they were doing of her work at, um, at, at in Paris. And that was one of the films that was done in, you know, three weeks time to, 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 to be in it. So uh, chance, mistake, they are all, and, and, and what Patty is doing in that piece is she is reading all of the definitions of the word passage from the Oxford English Dictionary, which go on for, you know, probably 10 or 12 pages. And then I did like a cut up as per William Burroughs of her reading those definitions. And I moved them around in my edit so that they made sense to me with the images. And then I wrote some text of my own. So it's totally about that. It's about all of those things. It's about, it's about uh, the ephemeral and about chance and about mistakes, that which are mistakes that aren't mistakes. It's a beautiful show. It's a beautiful piece, by the way. You're, uh, I went back and watched it without, uh, without the music. <laughs> Um, and I will tell after that it's a funny, it's a nice story. And, and, you know, I love his music, so it's okay. But anyway, uh, I, another memory that I will bring you in on is um, when I was cutting the video for Country Feedback, that was one of the first places where I was deeply embedded. I don't know. It was a battle because I really liked the song and I didn't even think really that it should have images with it. And I had to do them and I kept pairing them away. I put a bunch of things in, I shot a bunch of stuff. It, it kind of worked and then it pissed me off because it worked fine, <laughs> it worked well. And I kept pulling images away. And I remember, I just remember feeling the weirdest the weirdest feeling. I, I would step out of the edit room and I felt like physically almost ill with wanting to just pare it down more and more and thinking that sometimes it would really be best to, to listen to something and looking look, while looking at something very minimal so that the image and the, and the sound would meet in, and not beat each other up because they usually one of them usually beats the other one up. And, and you know, I wanted, you know, you know, I'm in complete accord with that. You know that exactly the way. And and at the same time, I I was a pop star and a pop artist, and and yeah. I'm a well, you were, you had to navigate in waters where those were not always viable rules. Let's just say I made, and, some, I made some terrible uh, regret regretful uh, choices. Uh, there are anyways our, our work together in that I, I, was not was it's not among those well i learned a but, lot from you. that's all the, the point the point being uh but the weird thing is is that i'm still in this fight and i can't seem to solve it so i formed this weird thing called gravity hill sound and image 
in which I do these live shows with projected images. And then I ask musicians that I love to work with them. And sometimes it, they, we, 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 we hash it out together and something is composed and it has to be very tight. Sometimes there are cues. Like we, we did that show about Cape Breton called We Have an Anchor that I think you saw. Okay. And the bam, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, they had to get in and out for like documentary material for dialogue. So it had to be very tight. It's not an improvised show. But there are other shows we do where I, you know, will will cut them loose. And I'll, I will create images sometimes which are very, um, which are very, uh, I don't know, I, I, I just, it's fascinating to me. And I can never feel like I quite get it right, but I, 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 I keep trying. And I, there are a lot of circumstances in which frankly, I don't wanna work with music and image. I, I barely put music in my films these days for the most part. And then of course, when I make a rule like that, I try to kick my own ass a little bit and see if there's a way in which I need to break my rule. So, you know, I, I don't wanna, it's not like I'm not going to put music in my film soundtracks, uh, but I, 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 I often tend to like movies more where they don't do it where they resist the temptation. But I do these live shows where I get to tangle with it in a different way because it's just gonna happen one night. And, you know, and, and, and so I, I don't, I'm not- Do you always record those? Just wondering. Uh, no, they're rarely recorded. It, 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 it's, it breaks my heart, frankly, because some of them are like, you know, we're in Istanbul or Porto or, or you know, uh, New Jersey for one night and it's never going to happen again, or it's never going to happen that way. But, you know, that's kind of the, like the life of a lot of musicians who play live, you know, uh, and you, you have to sort of accept that, but every once in a while it does get documented. I do have to say, I'm going to get off the phone. I, there's this thing. There are two things that I am cursed with. And one of them, I don't do that many interviews, but you know, I've, I know this thing, like it's like, interview remorse or like the ghost on the staircase. There's a great French word for it. The spirit on the, that, as, as you're leaving the, the, the room or the building, you encounter the thing that you wish you had done, you know, so and let's go, let's go to the ghost on the stairs. Well, just, yeah, those things are that we are in COVID and we are in a political crisis. And I'm, I, I'm glad that we didn't soak in it for the last hour and a half because we're soaking in it all the time and everybody's soaking in it and it can be dark, you know? But we have to be reminded that we are, I can't ignore that we are in that as we talk. And what I remind myself of whenever I'm in the middle of that is that a lot of people are in a time of crisis all the time, every day, and they don't need COVID to tell them that because they don't know where the money's gonna come from for the next meal, or they work three shitty jobs, or they don't have health insurance. And so, you know, I don't, there are a lot of ways that we're gonna, as a culture, gonna have to grapple with that. Uh, but as I, you know, a, a week ago, last time I was on Zoom, I was doing a little bit of phone banking for Indivisible. I talked to a guy in Georgia. I got a, a I got a right winger 
on the phone and we went at it for 20 minutes or half an hour. It, I, ha- I wish it was productive. I don't know that it was. What I couldn't understand is that, you know, he was arguing from a libertarian point of view, saying that the worst thing for him was big government and people taking away, going to come in to take away his guns. But I said to him, hey, man, do you have health insurance? And he said, no. He said, no, he had no health insurance. We're in a pandemic. And he's telling me that his biggest fear is big government. And I said, man, Vic Chestnut had pre-existing conditions and was haunted by medical debt. We need health insurance in this country. We're gonna have to work on that together as a country. You know, and so that's one of the things that people are trying to do as they work on all these other crises and problems. And it, again, we had this terrible incident with Congress and this kind of infiltration, riot, takeover, but everybody's got to keep their eyes on the, the takeover that is not just about what happened on January 6th. They've got to think about the corporate takeover takeover that makes too many decisions based on money and not based on the people's sustainability. And and so I leave the politics at that, but just to say that, you know, that's what I'm reminded of in these times is to remember that the, the crisis doesn't end when the vaccines come and a lot of us feel like we're in the safety zone now. No. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the whole other topic that we could have gotten into, which I'm also, I just don't have answers. I just don't have solutions that I wish I had, has to do with launch left. It has to do with how people are coming together as musicians, as activists and so on But there's this underlying pressing dilemma, which is how we can use things like the internet and let people know about good stuff, but also how are we going to make making stuff sustainable? How do we, how do, how do artists keep going? Like, I don't know. I, you know, it seems terribly clear to me that Spotify was is not a solution. It's it has become part of the problem. I was, you know, I, I don't have a social media presence, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a really bad thing because a lot of the things that we talked about in this hour are things that nobody has ever heard of because I'm not I'm not on Facebook, so they couldn't read about it on Facebook, which is where people read about stuff. And so it's not necessarily like I'm not necessarily thrilled or proud that I'm not on social media. I mean, I'm not happy that you know, that I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm single and people meet each other on the internet, apparently. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things that I just haven't solved, you know? I, but, love, how, I love how much Patty has taken the platform of Instagram and completely corrupted it. And and not corrupted, uh, but she's she's made it her own thing. She doesn't, she, doesn't, she doesn't know the rules of, of this particular platform. And so she's used it as this kind of beautiful sharing and teaching device. Uh, Patty's really made it work. And I go to her Instagram and I, 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 you know, but short of that, I, John cat power. I go to her Instagram because she's fired up and I love to see there, you know, it, it, 
it taps me into strains of activism that I that I often miss. There's a lot of that, but I but I still um, so like a couple of weeks ago, I almost got convinced to to do an Instagram, and I and I realized like I've got a million like pictures that I would that I would love for people to see, and I started you know old postcards. I mean, not just my own stuff, but just I collect old photos. I've got a bunch of weird stuff, and then I went and read the Instagram terms. And, and, you know, it's like, they say, we do not own what you post on Instagram. And then in the small print, they say, but we can do whatever we want with it. And we can give it to a third party to do whatever we want with it. That's really disturbing. Yeah. I don't know now whether I feel okay about going ahead and doing that account. I, and I'm, the, I'm conflicted. So these, to me, are issues that we need as artists to somehow get our you know that we need to work on them. I know I know that like Mark Rebo works on them with his with the the organizing that he does of musicians getting fair pay and fair due. You know and 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 there are people who are specifically concentrated on it but I still want us all to be aware. I mean I know that you had an Instagram and 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 a Twitter I think and well, you never had a Twitter, but you had an Instagram and you bailed on it. And that's very interesting. That was interest an interesting moment to me. Twice. Twice. I, I, I left it um, and I came back and I did something really absurd with it where I would photograph myself with other very famous and very renowned people who had done incredible things. And I would cut them out of the image. <laughs> so all you saw was my face beaming. And then you'd get half of Salman Rushdie or half of Tilda Swinton or half of whoever it was, uh, Patty. Smith, oh, <laughs> I do not. I do not. I, I I don't know what to make of that. But anyway, suffice oh, to say, fun. but but I, I read the book, uh, Jer the Jaron Lanier book, and I already knew that I wanted to leave social media because there's an addictive element to it that is not good for me. I'm not an right. addictive person, but I'm a person of a certain age, and I've I found myself on Instagram way too much. And it just was eating up. Let me just head. identify that book because I think it's a very important book called, I, I believe it's, I am not a gadget. No, it's um 10 reasons to leave your social. Okay. There's okay. Your social media. Those are both Jaron Lanier. The earlier one I think was called yeah. you are not a gadget or something yeah. like something along those lines, but look him up and the 10 reasons. Uh, there's some very important thinking there, but you know, there's also like, I, uh, like it's a joy to see Patty's Instagram, and I'm frankly I'm thankful for it. Uh, so you know, uh, but I'll also be completely um, happy for her if she decides at some point that she's done. <laughs> she has to. Yeah, I agree. And and uh, uh, a better platform is going to come sooner. The sooner the better. A better platform that doesn't claim in the small print that that they can do with your content whatever they wish. Well, well, I look forward to that. Jaron Lanier aside, and I, I recommend also everyone go uh, and check out his books and his ideas about social media and about these platforms that you and I both uh, do not participate in. There is a new thing that you're doing at Vimeo. And I, in in looking up stuff to have this conversation today, can you talk about that? Because you put some, some of your uh, shorter pieces uh, up for rent on Vimeo. Yeah, and even some of the longer ones. Yeah, I finally, uh, during this whole lockdown period, um, I felt bad that there were a lot of things that I've made that nobody had a, a, any way to access really. I mean, if you're a university or a, or a 
uh, a little museum or a film festival, then you could probably access them. But for people, it, it, it was really hard to do or impossible. So I did start to, uh, to use Vimeo on demand. And uh, there's a page there that people can go to. And I, I will continue to put work up. <laughs> I just want to, I want to, I want to end finally with a bit of advice. Let's have conversations uh, in terms of, uh, in terms of your archive, in terms of all of your work and, and where it's going to go, what's going to wind up with it. Go meet with someone at the New York Public Library. Easier said than done, but I, I libraries, uh, they do wonderful work. I, I'm, what I'm really thrilled about is if people are in Washington, D.C., they can go to the archive of John Cohen, no relation but a great filmmaker, an incredible photographer, wonderful musician, great, great banjo player. He left us a year or so ago and his stuff is in the Library of Congress being preserved right now in the most wonderful way. So this is something also that people can access and look forward to and thanks to them for doing that right on. Last time I went to the New York Public Library, I went through the archive, the, the personal archive of Virginia Woolf. It was incredible. Wow. That's and amazing. That might be where the personal archive of Jim Cohen belongs in all your work. I'm just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> kind of you. Maybe we'll end with that is a one time, one show only event, which was a show called Evenings Civil Twilight in Empires of Tin that I did with Vic and Guy Pachotto and uh, uh, Todd Griffin and, and Catherine McRae and a bunch of other people, uh, Jessica Moss. It was a big band, Ephraim, uh, a bunch of wonderful, solid musicians took it on, but it was terrifying. It was a big show, complicated as hell. It was a, it was a reflection on empire having that was a contrast between the Bush empire and the Habsburg empire, because we were doing a show in Vienna. So it had to do with a writer that I loved, uh, Joseph Roth, Joseph Roth, and a book called The Rudetsky March that I recommend. And we did this crazy show, but it was really built around Vic and Vic's, uh, some of his existing music that fit in bizarrely enough to critique of empire. Uh, and we did it, but it was, it was by the seat of our pants. And it was one of those things where a long line of people had to be held at the door while we desperately tried to get our shit together with like sound problems in the room. And then it happened for an hour and a half and it will never happen again. It's impossible, but luckily it was documented. Uh, you know, it's a little primitive because it was shot in DV, but I actually think they did it, that the, they did a good job. And I edited it, it, I edited it, it into a long form called Empires of Tin that this great label in Montreal uh, has on, available on DVD. Um, so that German guy with the wonderful voice reciting Yes, with Bobby, who ended up, uh, that's the, that's when I first worked with Bobby, who ended up being uh, in museum hours. So that's the same, that's the same guy. That's, yeah, the same guy. that's the same guy. That's how I met him. I listened Whoa. to him. I, you know, he was a driver, a non-actor, uh, sometimes working as a waiter. 
and he had a great voice and oh. uh, and we put him in, we asked him if he would read these texts. Oh. And he did such a beautiful job reading them that I thought, wow. I'm so moved. This guy I know how is, much I love museum hours. I'm so yeah. moved. That's well, anyway, yeah. So again, chance, you know, yeah. waiter, driver, non-actor, beautiful voice, put him in this and then ask him if he can do that. And he was great in it. Um, so, you know. I think that's, uh, a, I think that's a perfect way to, to end. Anyway. Oh, man, I love you so much. Welcome to 2021. We are moving towards the light. We are moving away from the ashtray darkness, the shadow self of 2020. COVID is still with us. People are hurting everywhere. But I do believe that there's a there's a brighter day ahead. I think I I, I second that. I don't know if I can raise it, but I'll I'll try a little bit. From my heart to yours. Okay. Peace. Fathers were realtors realtors and all that profit taking was a beautiful awakening they built themselves a beauty by the time kept dialing and I sat beside the big puddle like a shriner an angry shriner 
Launch Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left-of-center artists in all creative fields. 